gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm recording this on Tuesday. Uh, the DC is in a Borneo-like uh, fog of, of of sweat and the decaying embers of uh, various cicadas, and um, and it's all very bleak and sad for someone like me who does not like this weather. Um, but a bright spot is that I have Alex Tabarak on. Um, uh, I get a lot of grief from my more sort of nationalist, favorable conservative friends for having gone in such a classical, liberal, laissez-faire direction. And so it's uh, a, a, a real joy to have someone on here who makes me look like some sort of blood and soil guy. Um, uh, Alex is the co-founder of Marginal Revolution. He's a professor um, at uh, Mercatus and George Mason University. He's written an economics textbook. He has been um, sort of like that guy. Do you remember that guy in the Incredible Hulk TV show who was the only guy in the world who really believed that the Hulk was real and was determined to report on, on the danger and reality of him, and everyone thought he was sort of a crackpot. I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but that's sort of been Alex on the pandemic for a very long time and on the need to take vaccinations and whatnot seriously. Um, I first met him uh, like 10 years ago at a Liberty Fund conference. I would tell you more about that, but given the rules of confidentiality, I would have to cut off another finger if I revealed more. So with that, um, Alex, thank you so much for uh, coming on The Remnant. It's uh, great to be here, Jonah. So, um, and I should also say, you know, Canadian libertarian, there's a little bit of an oxymoron thing going on there, but <laughs> we, we can talk about that in a little bit as well. Um, so we didn't talk about talking about this, but this, the, the CPI numbers came out uh, this morning and I had, you know, I'm one of these people who's whipsawed between different friends who have different theories about the inflation stuff. We don't have to do a deep dive, but I was just wondering, where do you come down on the inflation wars? Is it is it systemic? Is it policy-driven? Is it temporary? Where where do you come down on all of it? Right. Uh, interestingly, uh, just last night, my wife castigated me, an economist, for uh, not calculating the CPI correctly. <laughs> um, so <laughs> she's uh, very concerned, uh, you know, that housing is not uh, uh, inputted correctly. Um so, you know, hopefully she won't listen. Uh, I'm sorry, Jonah. Hopefully she, she won't listen to the podcast. But I don't think she's quite correct. Um, um, basically, I'm, I'm pretty much of a, of a moderate that the CPI is, is actually pretty good. Um, there was a very interesting test a few years ago, the Billion Prices uh, Project. And what these guys did is they looked at essentially, uh, you know, billions, even billions of prices collected from the Internet. Um, so, uh, that gives you a huge, you know, dispersion of prices, much bigger, uh, collection of prices than in the CPI and the billion prices and the CPI correlated really, really closely. So that gave me a lot of, uh, confidence. Um, now, of course we are, it is true, you know, inflation is going up. Um, some of that is due to supply shocks. We're still, still dealing with the end of the uh, pandemic. 
you know, I'm trying to build a house, there's shortages, you know, lumber shortages, lumber prices are a little bit down from what they were a few months ago, but, you know, it's still hard to get, get things. So there's some supply shock issues um, and there's a huge amount of stimulus. Um, but are we going back to 1970s level um, prices, inflation? Um, I don't think so. All of the markets are sort of predicting, you know, under 5%, you know, going forward in, in the future for 10, 20 years. So I'm not I'm not so worried about 1970s level uh, inflation. Um, so the other side of that argument, uh, I had a, a friend of mine on, Dave Bonson, uh, who argues that we should be much more worried about sort of Japanese style uh, stagnation, deflation, that kind of thing. Do you think that's directionally correct or not? Well, right now, I think we've just had so much stimulus. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're overwashed in stimulus that I don't think that's an issue. I, I'm, uh, I never thought secular stagnation was so much of an issue. Um, I'm more, you know, market equilibrium kind of guy. Um, so I, I don't think that we need, you know, all of this uh, stimulus. But given that we've had it, then, you know, I'm certainly not worried about um, stagnation uh, from the demand side at this point in time. Do you think, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm gleaning from the, as the Straussians would say, the significant silences in your remarks, that you were at least skeptical about another four, five, six trillion dollars in human infrastructure spending? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, this is what, uh, you know, Tyler Cowan and I call the great forgetting. Um, just like all of the knowledge of, you know, macroeconomics as well as other areas that we built up in the 70s and 80s, it's just like being completely forgotten. So now, you know, the hot kids in Washington now think you can fine tune the economy and they say, you know, we need to run the economy hot. And I'm like, dude, the economy is not an oven, okay? <laughs> you know, there's not like a temperature control that you just don't. Oh, now we're going to run it hot. And that's going to mean that there's going to be lots of jobs for everybody. Um, you know, most of our problems are, to the extent that we have problems, they're on the supply side, they're deeper problems, structural problems. Um, you know, I, I don't think that this idea, look, in, in a recession, there's something to kind of a Keynesian argument of stimulating demand. You know, we can go into how much, but, but we're look, we're not in a recession. We haven't been in a recession for, you know, over 10 years, you know, we're uh, 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 putting aside the pandemic. I mean, we had the pandemic recession, but we're not in a, uh, you know, a classic uh, demand recession, you know, since 2008, right? I mean, this is not, uh, Ending the pandemic is what we need to do to fix our economic problems. We don't have a problem with demand because actually people are eager to spend. Everybody wants to spend all that money they've been saving. You know, I haven't I haven't traveled anywhere. I haven't had any vacations. You know, I, I, I want to go. I want to go out to restaurants. You know, the public is ready to spend. We don't need the government to spend. The public is ready to spend if uh you know, if the pandemic can, is, it ends, which we're, which is what is happening. I'd say I promise because he's for understandable reasons. You were a little, you're getting a little exhausted talking about vaccines for like a year. <laughs> right. um, but uh, um, I do think it's sort of, I'm tempted to play you this clip from 
Newsmax that went kind of viral yesterday where a host basically says, you know, I, I've one thing I've always thought, and, and maybe you can guide me on this because obviously I'm not a doctor, but when I've always thought about vaccines and I always think about just nature and the way everything works. And, and I feel like a vaccination in, in a weird way is just generally kind of going against nature. Like, I mean, if, if there is some disease out there, maybe there's just an ebb and flow to life where something's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people and that's just kind of the way evolution goes. Vaccines kind of stand in the way of that. And he doesn't quite get into like pure survival of the fittest, you know, Darwin Award, let, let, you know, let the useless bread gobblers die from the disease. He doesn't quite go there. But it's in the context of the big chunks of the right these days losing their minds about uh, the vaccine. And um, and so I want to trot out a, a partial theory on you. I think that I look, I'm deeply, deeply embarrassed by the, the right's anti-vax stuff. And but I think it's an interesting thing that prior to. Prior to the pandemic, anti-vax basically skewed more lefty. I mean, there were people on the right who, you know, had their crackpot stuff, but among the sort of elite sort of Hollywood types, the places where you would have these breakouts, it was much more of an anti-GMO kind of crowd, Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah, kind Robert of crowd. Kennedy is like a big, big pusher of the anti-vax nonsense. And the, I'm saying, let's leave it to him. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then, and then the, one of the weirdest ironies of all this is that um, prior Trump leaving office, Operation Warp Speed was one of his biggest talking points. He bragged about it all of the time. And now all of a sudden you have at CPAC people talking about, you know, the Fauci ouchie and don't come knocking on our doors. And they're, they're going to use this as excuse to take our Bibles and our guns and all this garbage. I think the larger, this is a major facet of a larger phenomenon, which is that people are just losing their goddamn minds because of the pandemic. You have a huge spike in unruly passengers on planes. You have, uh, I think, a big chunk of this crime stuff is related to a year of being essentially locked down. Um, uh, a lot of the anti-mask stuff or the pro-mask stuff, you know, both maskophilia and maskophobia, whether it's left or right, are nutty to me. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, is the long tail of the pandemic going to be for a while people just being weird? surly, easily excitable, and it's going to have a long tail effect on our politics and our policy planning as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that the pandemic has just made people, uh, you know, completely crazy. Um, and, but there's a, there, I, I think, I do think social media has got something to do with it as well. Right. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I think I have a weird theory, um, that, you know, you think about the rise of Hitler, right? And um, like when I, when you look at a movie of Hitler today, he looks like faintly ridiculous, right? He's got this ridiculous kind of looking mustache, and and you know he's his his shouting and his uh, Führer just seems like really weird, and and you know, and you wonder like how was this guy so powerful and influential? Was he one of the great speakers? And, you know, he looks like a Charlie Chaplin knockoff yeah. or something like that. And Mussolini kind of looks like one of the stooges, you know, yeah, when you exactly. go back and look at right. it. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, I think it was, it was sort of the influence of uh, movies and, and radio and uh, that you saw the, for these people, um, you know, who were literally giants, right, uh, on, on the screen. 
And uh, it just messed with our brains. Uh, we hadn't, you know, we were used to thinking big people, powerful people. And now you see these images, which you've never seen before in your entire life. Um, and it, it kind of messes with your brain. And it takes some time uh, to get a new uh, media, a new understanding of media, to get our brains accustomed to this new kind of media. And I think social media is the same way, is that... Um, the the fact that you can find whatever news sort of exactly reflects your own personal opinions and then it amplifies itself, you know, um, so that the crazy builds on the crazy, you increasing returns to craziness to use some economics jargon. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, and it's going to just take, you know, uh, a, few, a generation or two. Like even I think my kids are a little bit uh, more um, attuned to, hey, don't believe everything you read on the internet, you know, because um, something can look very authoritative, right? Uh, and, you know, you can say, Dr. So-and-so said this, and, you know, it takes some work to figure out that Dr. So-and-so, you know, got his degree from, you know, some Maharashtra University. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, you know, or you know, to be honest, I mean, or, I mean, part of the problem is it's not just, I mean, we don't have to be, go too credentialist here. Um, right, yeah. There are a lot of people who have degrees from good universities who sort of in the Nietzschean sense, they look into the abyss and the abyss looks into them and they lose their their minds. I mean, Rudy Giuliani had a really great resume. Um, you could go down, you know, what's his face? Peter Navarro. I mean, he's been kind of a nut for a while, but um, there are lots of people with credentials who get addicted to the positive feedback loop from their biggest fans. And I've always, as a journalist, I've always argued, even if I haven't always lived up to it, but I've always given this advice is every now and then you have to disappoint your biggest fans. Otherwise you become a caricature because, and you know, Ann Coulter is a great example of this. Uh, but there are a lot of people who, um, because of the perverse incentives of being famous. And I think Fame seeking can be as big as a corrupting influence as any there is out there. Um, you get lots of people who just they want the attention and they feel like if they if they stop getting attention, um, they would wither away and die. I mean, I bring it up all the time. Larry King thought it was vital that he be on TV, regardless of the platform, until the day he died, because it's who his identity was. And I think that's one of the problems that. I think social media is actually one of these these ecosystems that encourages that. Yep, yep. And let me say that here's a good chance for me to suck up. <laughs> but I did want to say actually that uh, Jonah, I mean, uh, you're one of the very few conservatives which have like kept rational and true and kept the faith and and been like not gone crazy. I mean, it's been remarkable how few um, were against Trump and sort of said, you know, Trump has got He's unfit for office. He's got these pathological problems and yet did not also fall prey to Trump derangement syndrome. You know, uh, we're, we're also capable of saying, you know, the Russia stuff is kind of nonsense and, you know, he's not being treated fairly on this question. Um, and yet everything you said, you know, has been completely true. You had a great piece on, you know, character is everything, right? And everything you said in that piece, I, I recommend people go back and read it. It's like totally come true. You know, we knew a crisis would be faced and uh, we knew that this was not the guy for a crisis. And that's exactly what happened. Well, I, I appreciate that. 
appreciate that I, I come from a long line of Jews who think all compliments are bad luck. So we, yeah, we don't need to dwell on that. But since you brought up how he handled a, a crisis, I'm curious about your overall scorecarding. Um, we don't have to go too deep in the weeds on this. But also, at a more, at a, I think the more interesting question is, let's assume, I'll assume for the sake of argument, and I'll, bear, I'll load it into the, 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 the question. Um, let's assume for the sake of argument, you do not give Donald Trump a great score on handling the pandemic. How is it, what is your explanation for why it seems that America, nonetheless, is handling it better than a whole bunch of countries that, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone, everyone was like, see, we're such idiots, look how great Taiwan or, or, or uh, Singapore or wherever, you know, these or Japan, um, South Korea. Uh, why is it that we we seem to have this comparative advantage on this um, that even that, that even Trump's m bad messaging and all this didn't seem to sort of get too much in the way of. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, look, for starters, 600,000 Americans are dead. So that, that is a big black stain, which is never going to be a race. And it didn't have entirely. to be, yeah. did not have to be that way. Um, many of these people could have lived, um, now, uh, having said that, you know, Trump was a poor handler of, of the crisis without doubt, but the rot is deep. There are many, many things which went wrong, which cannot be blamed on Trump. You know, the CDC botched the initial test, um, and then they tried to protect their, uh, bureaucratic, uh, power base by telling everybody, no, we got it handled. We got it handled. And they pushed everybody off for weeks. The FDA said, uh, we're not going to allow private companies or states to do their own testing. And uh, this, at the very beginning of the crisis, really took the South Korea option, which is suppression, you know, off, off the table. Because we weren't testing uh, early and quick, that option was taken off the table. Once that option was off the table, then, look, you have a big country like the United States, which is open um, to the world. It's going to be very, very difficult uh, to stop uh, this virus. And after that, I think, you know, a, a lot is just bad luck. Uh, a lot is geography. A lot is, you know, it, a, a lot about what happened in the pandemic is not due to policy at all. And the virus shames all of us, uh, you know, sooner or or later. All right. So let's let's I mean, uh, let's change gears a little bit. Um, um, I made reference to that, that, um, Newsmax guy saying, you know, genes are just good for, I mean, uh, pandemics are just good for calling the gene pool as it were and whatnot. And, um, and you brought up the 600,000 dead. I mean, one of the things that depresses me the most about so much of the rights response is even though I'm, I'm amazed that the left has not made the, this connection, is how much it undermines a consistent pro-life message. Whether you're pro-life or not, to be so cavalier about hundreds of thousands of Americans, of vulnerable Americans, of the neediest Americans, particularly if you're of a sort of a Catholic social doctrine pro-lifeism, uh, was really sort of a, a moral scandal that I don't think the right has has spent 
a fraction of the time necessary to sort of ponder what that is going to mean long term for them. But you come from, uh, I don't want to, if I'm, and I'm, if I'm mischaracterizing you, let me apologize up front. You correct me. I'm open to correction. Uh, you're sort of in the cornucopian humanist camp, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you, um, I was listening to you on some podcasts while I was preparing for the show, talking about how much you're hoping or uh, how optimistic you are that our rivalries with China will lead us to do some of the things the Chinese are doing about like genetic editing of children and, and all of these kinds of things. Um, first of all, just sort of where are your, what are your ethical goalposts or, or guideposts about what we can and can't do with human beings? I mean, you're sort of pro robot, you're pro, I mean, are you, and is it all just to get richer? <laughs> so let me b- begin with just a bit on the vaccines, you know, because I love the vaccines. And, I do too. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, no. But it, to me, like the vaccines, it's like a superpower, you know, like uh, Superman is immune to bullets. And I tell people, like, wouldn't you like to have the immunity to bullets? Wouldn't that be a great superpower? You'd be like Superman, immune, immune <laughs> to bullets. But look, the virus has killed many more people this year than bullets have. So the vaccine makes you immune to the virus. It's better than being immune to bullets. I mean, what an incredible superpower. This is like, you know, bodybuilding. You're, 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 you're making your body better. You're training your body like Rocky, right? You know, you know, now you can beat the virus, right? You know, smash the, you know, that Russian guy, right? You know, with the right hook, you're, you're training your body to beat the virus. So I, I love these vaccines and, you know, to think that I'm, I'm immune to, you know, uh, uh, Japanese and encephalus. That's great, right? You know, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, and, also, almost everything we ascribe to modernity and progress, I mean, this is a big point in my book, are unnatural. You know, first of all, democracy is unnatural. But second of all, um, you know, antibiotics, super unnatural. Air conditioning, unnatural. I mean, all of these things that make us immune to the entropy, death and decay of the natural environment are unnatural and including the eyeglasses that both of us are wearing. And I'm in favor of them both. I mean, so I, I I get the general point, but what's your limiting principle on this kind of stuff, I guess is the question I'm groping with. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So now we get into big issues. Um, I mean, right now I don't see any limiting principles. So (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to bite the bullet and uh, say, um, look, uh, the, the idea that in the future um, we're going to be cyborgs uh, or something like that, that doesn't bother me um, in the slightest. Uh, you know, uh, if I could get, I mean, we're already so connected to our phones, right? Uh, our phones really are now an extension of our beings, uh, which enables us to connect with, you know, the, the almost the entire range of human knowledge, right? Is it literally in the palm of our hand? Okay, and uh, you know, uh, integrating that into the eyeglasses, and you know, from the eyeglasses, integrating that into the eye, uh, into the brain. Uh, I have no problem uh, with that. I I'm kind of excited about that. Um, you know, uh, I'm. I'm just of the age where I think I'm not going to make it <laughs> to the, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, what do they call it? Um, the great explosion. Or the singularity. Uh, or the singularity, or excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I should know my terminology. I, yeah, I think I'm not going to quite make it to the singularity, 
But um, my kids, my grandkids, they might make it. You know, sometimes you know my colleague uh, Robin Hansen is well known for um, being a purchaser of a cryonics uh, contract, uh, where his head will be uh, frozen. I have a friend who's also done that. I, right, I, will not, right. I will not name them for fear of them not wanting to be named. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Robin, Robin is out, so I think it's, it's okay. And I flirted, I flirted with that. You know, if my crypto goes up enough, uh, maybe I'll uh, get a cryonics uh, contract. Okay, so, but all right, so if you have, if you truly have no, I mean, you have to have some limiting principle, right? I mean, certainly like some Benthamite utilitarian first do no harm kind of thing. I mean, uh, you can't, one human can't use another human as a, as an instrument of their will. Right. I mean, you right, believe right. in all that stuff, right? Sure, that sure. I'm, I'm a, yeah. I'm an individual rights, classical liberal, uh, kind of a person as, as you know, I think, but in terms of, um, is there some aspect of humanity which can't be changed? Um, you, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm all for improvement and progress, and that includes uh, improvement and progress in human beings, in making human beings uh, better. Look, the, here's another way I put it. I say, look, I did a lot of genetic engineering uh, to produce my kids, right? Um, you know, I didn't go to a lab. I did it the old fashioned way. I, I looked around for a, uh, a wife uh, who had characteristics uh, that I wanted in my kids. You know, I wanted, a, you know, smart kids and, you know, reasonably good looking kids and, you know, <laughs> uh, nice kids and all this kind of stuff. So I chose a wife with all of these great qualities. And then we mixed our genetic code. OK, and, and that's how we got our kids. That's the old fashioned way. Um, I don't see really much difference with you know, um, if, if look, the Jews for a long time, right, have practiced um, genetic engineering looking for Tay-Sachs, right? Um, so, uh, you know, a, as you know, um, it's quite common to check your partner um, for um, a Tay-Sachs and, uh, you know, make some arrangements uh, one way or another, either a different partner, if you, at that, depending upon the stage of your relationship, or, you know, you, you do something else. I think that's like totally, totally reasonable. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. I think that's smart. Okay. So one of the critiques, I'm going to put it this way. I'm with you about, you know, you've been, you've been, uh, banging your kettle drum about how even, even on the margins, uh, uh, switches towards less authoritarian, more market driven, ideas as in China and all these places have resulted in the greatest alleviation of, of mass poverty in human history. I'm with you. Use a lot of that stuff in my book. I, I, I think it's great. I think it's a scandal that we don't celebrate it more, that we don't message better on it. Um, but all right. So my understanding is that nobody actually embraced the concept of ho homo economicus. It was always sort of a pejorative, um, and that it's always been sort of a straw man. And, uh, but the critique of you and your, I say this lovingly ilk, um, is that you do end up reducing everything down to productivity gains, innovation, gross GDP improvements, um, money, you know, and wealth and all of that kind of stuff. And so there are people in my world who hear you talking about how awesome it's going to be to make cyborgs. And maybe, you know, maybe I can have the head of a cheetah one day. Um, and all these kinds of things 
um, that you are not concerned with the sources of meaning and forget transcendence uh, that actually bind together a society and give people a, a, a rich and productive life by reducing things to sort of economic inputs and outputs. How do you plead, sir? Uh, well, uh, look, it, on, on, the first, on the surface, you can just talk about sort of GDP, but when you really think about this, this uh, increases in GDP are a tremendous human accomplishment and achievement. And many of us, most of us, in fact, I would say, get a huge amount of satisfaction and purpose in production, right? So it's, on, it's in our work. Our work is a big part of our identity. And if you think about the species as a whole, you know, to think about uh, the great, you know, mathematical theorems or to think about, you know, cathedrals or to think about um, CRISPR, which is a you know, tool for genetic engineering. These are incredible accomplishments of the human mind. And they are wonderful, wonderful transcendent a- achievements of what, you know, reason and productivity and you know pride and uh, what what all these things can can uh, accomplish. So I think there's it, it, to say that um, GDP, you know, go, growth in GDP is is meaningless is is actually to mistake um, what makes the meaning in a huge part of our lives. Like I'm not against somebody going off um, to. Uh, commune with, with, with nature, you know, be a hermit, you know, religious transcendent. I'm not against that, but look, um, that is for a very, very small minority of people that they actually find life's meaning in those kinds of pursuits. Uh, most of us, our meaning is actually found in, in work. That's where we spend a lot of part of our lives. And that's where a lot of our enjoyment and identity comes from. Yeah, I, I'm I'm basically with you on a lot of this. Um, I there was a interview that I can't remember the guy's name um, that uh, Ezra Klein did recently over the New York Times with this guy. I'm sure you're familiar with this argument. You get it. You run into it when you start looking at this stuff pretty often. That humanity basically took a wrong turn with the agricultural revolution. And, you know, there's this, there are these anthropologists. I'm not sure I believe them. Uh, you know, you start, whenever you start diving into these, you know, uh, uh, stuff about how, about the sort of Rousseauian noble savages, they don't, they don't seem so noble and they do seem pretty savage, but whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's the diversity of tribes out there and hunter gatherer universe and some live more uh, enlightened lives than others. That's fine. But they'll put the point on things like you only had to work about 15 hours a week and that you had a bit more varied diet. And I, I think there's a lot of credibility to that compared to how the average serf, slave, or peasant lived post-agricultural revolution in large parts of the world. Um, but we're, we're sort of over that hump, as it were. <laughs> and um, uh, and, and the, but the persistence of the, no, the sort of Rousseauian noble savage idea that we are happy, happier and more prosperous living alone out there in the woods won't go away. And um, I'm wondering, do you have a theory about why it seems to be this, you know, this bad penny that keeps showing up? Because it seems to me living alone, seeking transcendence in the forest is another way of saying, I'm going to take a vow of poverty. 
you're going to have to do everything yourself. There is no division of labor. But anyway, do you have a theory about where this comes from? Yeah, there is this, you know, the, uh, these guys came up with the most popular painting, right? I don't know if you know this. And uh, they tried to come up with all the things people like, and then they produce the most popular painting. And it's like a lake and a mountain and, you know, a river and stuff like that. So I, so I do think there is something, um, you, you know, in our, in our code, which, which makes us like, like nature. I think that's fine. But actually what is natural of human beings is the city. Uh, cities are what is natural because every time human beings have a chance, the first thing they do is build a city, right? Um, and the the movement to the city is much bigger than the movement away from the city. Uh, you know, I I sometimes like to watch this show, uh, Naked and Afraid, right? Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you know, just the the mosquitoes alone are enough to convince me that uh, you do not want to go, you know, live out 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 in the woods. Um, I mean, it's just awful, awful, right? Um, nothing makes you appreciate the mall more than seeing these guys pull thorns out of their feet and, and red ant bites, you know, go all over their bodies, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think what is natural for human beings, um, is actually civilization. Um, and you know, nature is good too, um, but it has its place. Okay. So changing gears again slightly now. Um, where well all right so i'll tie it to where we've been um one of so you brought us up with social media about new technology sort of messing with our brains and it takes us a while it's not so much that new technology is bad for our brains it's that the, the lag time of adaptation to new technology can create huge disruptions and we've seen this since the printing press right um and, you know, talk radio fueled massive populist uprisings in the United States and in Europe, and some of them ended poorly, I think we can agree. Um, we're in the middle of one for social media as well. And so with that in mind, and also the sort of um, your enthusiasm for the coming singularity, uh, aren't you, uh, are you a little world as a prudential, practical matter? that you get bad, you get worse politics when you rush some of these things um, and you get, you get major backlashes. I mean, we don't have to go all Dune and talk about Butlerian jihads, but um, you do, you need to give people time to make, to, to, to make peace with certain new ideas and new forms of technology. And it seems like I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems like this is a, just a, a practical issue that is uh, that is hard to grapple with um, for a political project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, if if there were sort of, uh, but I don't know how to limit it. That, that's the problem. I mean, if there were such a thing, um, I, I might be convinced. Um, like, uh, but I do take this seriously, particularly when it comes to like artificial intelligence, right? Um, I do think artificial intelligence, um, could be, you, you know, uh, explode. Um, you know, you're, you're right now we have, uh, AIs, which are designing chips, which themselves are used to produce the next generation of AIs, right? And so you have this feedback uh, loop. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And 
you know, we have so many examples of complex systems which uh, we don't understand and, and which could then go wrong. You know, the financial system, you know, 2008, that was one example. I think the environmental system is another complex system we don't understand. So I'm not like a big doom and gloomer on the environment, um, climate change per se, but I do worry that um, there could be some unknown unknowns, uh, you know, to quote Rumsfeld, um, like, you know, methane gas being, you know, released from the permafrost frost uh, in the Arctic, um, which could very quickly change the climate, much more quickly than, you know, a degree, you know, over 100 years, which I think we can handle. Um, so, yeah, I do. I totally worry about these things. I wish we had a better um, government, a better governance structure, a better way of handling these these issues. Um, uh, so I'm not, I just don't know, you know, it, I just don't know how to, how to deal with these things. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, um, investing now in thinking about how to sort of control AIs, like Asimov's three laws, just don't cut it, you know, right. Um, and, and so I, I do think there's a, a value there. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm much more worried about a dumb AI problem. I, I'm not up to, I, I mean, I've, I read a bit about this stuff a while ago, but you know, there's this guy who wrote this book about this stuff about how the, the, I think he says the bigger threat is less from Skynet and some evil, you know, artificial intelligence trying to destroy humanity because they're a competitor or something like matrix style nonsense and more that you get essentially a pin factory or a widget factory that says that some coder said, do everything you can to maximize widget output. And they decide, and the AI says, okay, well then, uh, you know, I'm going to melt the ice caps because I need more water <laughs> or whatever it is and just do stupid, stupid things because, you know, AI, AI is going to be as smart as, as bugs long before it's as smart as evil geniuses. And the bug intelligence is probably more dangerous than the evil genius intelligence. And it's certainly as a matter of sort of Occam's razor, we're going to get there first. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's exactly right. So the AI could be very good at doing a, a few things, but if there's no limiting principle, as you said, then the pin factory tries to take over the world. And there's, there's actual examples of this. I mean, this happens even in our sort of daily interactions, right? When, you know, it's uh, some piece of software or, or code, um, does something which has a logic of its own. You understand why it did it, but it wasn't doing what you meant it to do, right? You know, it did what you told it to do. It didn't do what you meant it to do. Yeah, it, um, it took you literally rather than seriously. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, but so but back on this backlash problem, because I don't think it just applies. To, I mean, I, I'm personally on the technology. I, I want to study the hell out of it. I don't think we should do anything like it for 10 or 15, 20 years. But geoengineering has a real appeal to me because I, I am, I'm, I think we have, we have messed with the natural environment so much that these people say you can't mess with mother nature, that door closed 200 years ago. I'd much rather keep mother nature healthy the same way, like, you know, with vaccines and whatnot, you know, we, we do that with the human body. Let's, let's do it with planet earth. If that means, you know, figuring out how to increase the albedo or whatever it is, or creating plants that can suck up more, you know, CO2, that's fine. I, I like that stuff. But Outside of the world of policy and innovation, you are also, and again, totally open to correction if I've got this wrong, 
but you are, um, you know, the phrase open borders gets thrown around at a lot of people who are not, in fact, open borders um, as a sort of pejorative. But you consider the term, again, open to correction, a badge of honor, and it is not a pejorative. It is descriptive rather than uh, anything else with you. Is that right? You were basically an open borders guy? Yeah, yeah, correct. Let let, let me say two things. Uh, First, just to finish up on the geoengineering, I think you're right. We do need to invest in geoengineering because we're not going to do anything about it until there's a crisis. So we better be ready when when the crisis uh, comes. That's the real problem there. Yeah, so let's talk about open borders and immigration more generally. But before we talk about the policy, um, let me try and build a bridge, some some bridges uh, here with the audience and perhaps with you as well. Our, 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 I think our audience is going to give you a very fair, decent hearing. There'll be some interesting comments, but I, I, it, it, I, I'm just having fun with this because I normally am the guy who's sort of the Alex Tabarak in my conversations with people. And it's, so it's nice to go back to my National Review role of, as the sort of the mean knuckle dragging right winger dealing with the crazy libertarian. So yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll, I'll try and play my role as best <laughs> I can. But uh, yeah, to begin with bridge building, look, when I talk with immigrants and think about immigrants, the, 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 the immigrants that, that I speak with, this is like the, they're the best of America, and they, they remind me of the America which uh, I love and think is great. These are the people who tell you unabashedly that America is the greatest country in the world. I mean, they came here, they will tell you their stories. Off, they came here with nothing, with $5 in their pockets. They made a life here, and they are enormously grateful. Right. So they, they'll tell you, you know, they, they were escaping, you know, repression, perhaps that America, the United States saved their lives. Right. And this is the only country in the world which which let them in. And they have lived the American dream. They've built things here. And they're not talking about, you know, oh, systematic racism. You know, we couldn't get anything done in America. You know, the, the, the stuff like this. Right. Uh, I mean, these the um, the immigrants are just to remind me of what is awesome uh, about the United States and one of our, our strongest values. And it's it's like we need the immigrants to uh, remind us that for all of the problems um, that the United States has, uh, it is the greatest country in the world. It is one of, you know, I mean, it's crazy to say this, right, because it goes so counter to, you know, the, 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 the discussion, but like it's clearly one of the least racist countries, one of the biggest diverse countries, one of the countries in the world, in the entire history of the world, where more diverse people get along better and work together and cooperate and produce uh, things uh, than anywhere else uh, that that you can think of. Um, I agree with all that. You know, I was always on the squishier side of the immigration issue at National Review, um, even though I agreed with some of their arguments, which we'll get to in a second. But the thing that I have been banging my spoon in my high chair about for 10 years, 20 years, is how infuriating it is for conservatives to voluntarily surrender the immigration story as a conservative story. I mean, I, when I say conservative, I just mean sort of in the old sort of conservative, patriotic, rah-rah America thing. Um, you know, I often point out my father-in-law, uh, who was this incredibly impressive guy, you would have liked him. Um, he swam the Danube to escape the communists, spent a year in a refugee camp, came here with nothing and ended up 
getting a master's from Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. And then he moved to Alaska because he thought the lower 48 was going to socialist. And when he got there, the economics job he was supposed to get at the university wasn't funded. So he became a milkman and then bought the grocery store that you, he worked for and then bought another grocery store and ended up owning a chain of grocery stores in Alaska. That's good stuff, right? That is like the American story. And the idea that we don't like those stories, I mean, the, the only people who are real Horatio Algiers and, at any scale anymore, I mean, they're always individuals from every walk of life, are immigrants. And I, I, so I'm, I'm with you on that. That's, or as Peter Schramm, a late friend of mine, he wrote a wonderful essay about his father who survived the bombing of his factory in Hungary and said, all right, we're going to America. And, his kid, and Peter said, why America? And he says, because we were born American just in the wrong place, right? I love yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Love it. Beautiful. Just love it. That said, how do you not have a limiting principle for how many people can move here as a prudential matter, right? I mean, uh, the, the standard Milton Friedman argument was you can't have unlimited immigration while you still have a robust welfare state. Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? And if you're not worried about, and, and you really should be worried about the same kind of backlash that we got with technology, that we could get with technology with immigration, because I think it explains a lot of our politics. Professor, explain thyself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's begin sort of the highest uh, level um, as sort of pure libertarian kind of level is like, it just offends me to have uh, government agents on the border with machine guns and barbed wire, um, you know, telling people they cannot come here to, you know, trade and to uh, uh, exchange with people who are already in the country. Like this, I just find, you know, you know, uh, 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 offensive and, you know, it's against, you know, it's against rights. People uh, have the right to move around. Um, people have the, the right to vote with their feet, to uh, travel the earth. Um, so, yeah, I, I think people uh, should be able to peacefully, you know, move from place to place. Now, uh, we get to sort of, yeah, prudential stuff, limiting principles, welfare state. Look, um, uh, to the extent that uh, immigration is um, contrary to the welfare state, that just tells you that the welfare state ain't such a great thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so much for the welfare state. Now, some of the welfare state actually you can keep. Like, and quite a bit of it, actually. So quite a bit of the welfare state is, like Social Security, for example, is primarily, not entirely, but primarily is a, a forced savings uh, program, right? And you can tell, you know, should we have forced savings? Should we let people, you know, and, you, and I think there's some arguments that, you know, people don't think about the future enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, a forced savings program you can you can maintain. You know, um, it becomes more difficult to maintain it when there's a huge amount of redistribution, right? But a forced savings program uh, you you can maintain, and and quite a bit of the welfare state is is like that, like public health, for example. Um, you know, public health or even public education, uh, particularly in the uh, early years. You know, public education basically pays for itself, right? Um, because uh, you educate the young and then they have higher incomes, um, when they're uh, older. And, uh, so the, the revenues from that are more than enough to pay for the, uh, public education and same things with, you know, public health, you know, 
pandemic policy and stuff like that. So you can keep quite a bit of that. You know, the immigrants could come in, you can educate them. It's expensive for a little while, but um, their incomes are so much higher that they pay for their own uh, education. So again, there's not a lot of redistribution or there's less redistribution than people think. So I think a modified welfare state, um, uh, some, some of it can, can survive um, a lot of immigration. But to the extent that it can't, then, you know, too bad, too bad for the welfare state. It's unjust. And in your, again, just as a sort of pragmatic, prudential praxis, whatever P word you want to use here, uh, you think that people who move here after a short amount of paperwork and I dotting and T crossing can become full fledged citizens and vote. Yeah, so I'm uh, so if we want to talk about what my colleague Brian Kaplan calls sort of keyhole solutions, like what we could have a lot more immigration and deal with these problems if they are in fact problems with specific policies. So, for example, I don't have a big problem with saying that you can come here and work, and but you don't get to be a citizen, you know, for you know ten years or fifteen years, or you know your kids get to be citizens, or but you, I don't have a big problem with that. Um, just because I think we have to be voting on fewer things anyway, right? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so the vote, uh, while not unimportant, is I think less important than some other things. I'd be very happy to have uh, workers uh, uh, come and, uh, and interact. Um, and yeah, I don't have any problems, in, again, w- which we have done, saying, you know, you, you can't use welfare for the first X years and then you can only use it as we do. You know, you can only have welfare, you know, for five years or something like that. I don't have big problems with, with that. Um, but look, here's, here's, look, I will say this. Um, I also don't have big problems with, you know, seeing poor people. That, I think, is what offends a lot of people, right? Um, is they don't want to see poor people. So you kind of know, oh, these poor people, they're in, they're somewhere else. They're living somewhere else, but you don't want to see them on your streets, right? And I don't have a problem with that. You know, I had a sabbatical in uh, Mumbai in India and, um, you know, Mumbai has tremendous um, gradations uh, in, in wealth, right? So there's a lot of people live in slums and a lot of people, you know, live in, you know, high rises. Um, and I, you know, for for people to come and and live here in as they did in the tenements in in New York um and places like like that um the 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 problem is poverty and i don't think that just because i don't want to see poor people i don't think that's a legitimate reason to exclude them from making a better life here um I mean, I'm sure, I mean, we could, we could go down a rabbit hole here and I know a bunch of listeners would like me to push back on all this stuff, but I'm assuming you've heard all of the usual arguments about this because you can't get known for making these arguments without hearing the usual pushback. I do think that as a sort of prudential matter, um, even if I agree with a lot of the principles at play here, I think you need some limiting principles. And one of the limiting principles is that the existing citizens of a country have some reasonable expectation to be able to decide, you know, how they're, who else becomes a citizen. You know, if, you know, if you're a member of a club, 
to a certain extent, you get to decide who else becomes a member of the club. And um, I know that there are bad, you know, there are bad interpretations of that analogy or the, and there aren't, but I, I think I mean this in the, as enlightened a way as possible. And the backlash, I mean, listeners about, of this podcast have heard me say this a million times. My official position on immigration for 20 years now has been, you know, people ask me, what is your preferred policy? And my answer has always been to have one. Because I think the simple lack of clarity about what the policy is while um, letting millions of people come here illegally breeds all sorts of bad resentments. And I think we talked earlier about the human mind having a certain, you know, there's a certain kind of like sweet tooth for pastoralism. There's also a, a you know, a, there's a very bitter taste for... Uh, the other and for interlopers and for people who cut lines and you can go down a very long list of things that are dislocative to social peace. Um, when you have either unrestrained or illegal immigration, and I think it would be better for the world and for America to impose some rationality on it. And, um, and that would, probably increase the net out the net inflow of immigrants over the long haul more than sort of the snap your fingers let's get rid of all these immigration laws because that is guaranteed to invite a backlash yeah so let let me agree and disagree in part um so the disagreement is look actually the places which have more uh immigrants are actually more um, accepting of immigration. It's actually the places that don't have a lot of immigrants, which, which, which think that their country is being taken over, you know, and, uh, you know, terrible things are happening. Uh, places where there's a lot of, uh, immigrants, uh, you know, they, they, they integrate into the collective tapestry, um, quite, quite well. Um, and I think part of the problem is, so, so I would not want to frame this as a collective decision. So I think in general, we have collectivized far too many decisions. So uh, not either at the national level or at the, you know, the, the, the uh, local level, you know, the homeowners associations uh, get to decide you get to paint your house, you know, blue and but this shade of blue and not that shade of blue. And, you know, we've collectivized all of these decisions. And um, I, I hate that kind of stuff. And I would much rather have these decisions decided individually with a spontaneous uh, order kind of a process. And if you don't think about them as collective decisions, then you don't get worried about them so much. Um, it's, it's precisely because we think this is a club that we think we need club rules. Well, let's just stop thinking about it as a club. Um, you know, I don't think about the street as, you know, a club and I get to decide who comes down the street. Uh, you know, why should we think about the country that way? Um, so I, I would, I would, so, so my solution to this solution is too strong a word, but my approach to these kinds of things is to decollectivize them, to uh, make them, you know, uh, you know, Hayek talked about the whole idea of this social justice, right? We just need to get rid of the word social. Okay, it's not a collective. It's, we just think about justice and do it on an individual level, and then what bubbles up from that is a uh, is justice. But if we try and have social justice and pr- push it top down, 
then we're going to get something which violates individual rights, but which also does not produce a pleasing you know, pattern of uh, interactions. Now, where I agree with you is, look, there are, you know, this is, you know, dorm beer talk because we're way, we're way, way away from what I would like. Now, um, there we're are even things, far away from what I would like. So. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> there are th- some simple things that we could do, which would be remarkably beneficial for the United States. Um, for example, just to increase the um, program for uh, letting in extraordinary people, right? You know, I mean, this is, there's a, there's a, an understand. Look, look. There's an astounding number of people who are educated, you know, in other parts of the world and who would like to come here and apply their education. It's like we can take advantage of this. They get educated somewhere else. They pay all the costs of their childhood. And then these people want to come here and start businesses. That's fantastic for us. Let's let in more of those people. Um, Let's let in more of the uh, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, the scientists, the the PhDs, right? Um, You know, I think we should let in more of other people as well. But like, if you're worried There's no, there's very few arguments for not letting in the PhDs. And in fact, we do insane thing is, insane things is that we bring people in as students, educate them here, and then say, you have to go back to your country. You can't stay. So there's a lot of students, they come here, they like it here. They like the freedom. There's students from China, uh, they come here and they're amazed at how much freedom that they have. And they say, I don't want to go back to China, you know, where... I have to join the Communist Party if I want to, you know, rise up. Um, You know, I want to stay here in the United States, the place which has educated me. I have a PhD. I can give back to this country, which is given to me. And the government instead says, no, you got to go back to China. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. So there's a bunch of low-hanging fruit, which I think with more rational policy, we could pick. I'm I'm extremely sympathetic to that. You know, um, you you shouldn't let all policy be driven by your aversion to the really hard cases. Instead, you should kind of focus on the easy cases. And I, I really like this point about collective decision-making, although it's funny, there is a strain. I don't know where you come down on this stuff and this is not about you per se, but there's a strain to some of the stuff that you're talking about that ties into this. There's that subset of libertarians who are also kind of sympathetic to monarchism because they would prefer to have if they if you can't have it bubble up as individual yeah, right. choices, they would rather impose one optimal system from above. And um, and when you think about places like homeowners associations or the zoning and housing laws of San Francisco or New York, you kind of do feel like a libertarian monarch would be vastly preferable to the sort of small D democratic you know decision making of a bunch of you know, NIMBY people. Um, it's kind of an interesting point. Yeah, my view on democracy is that it, uh, I like democracy because it's a limit on government, right? It doesn't seem that way. It's not usually how it's taught, but it, it, it limits what governments can do. And, you know, and it, it limits the very worst things that governments can do, you know? Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with Rommel's work on democide and, you know, the, the, the times and places where governments have slaughtered their own citizens, right? Or let their own citizens starve. That, those kind of things don't happen in a democracy. So I'm very um, pro-democracy in terms of a way of limiting some of the worst things the government can do. And since government does some very, very bad things, you know, that, that's, a, that's, that's a good thing. Um, 
But after that, you know, okay, let's have democracies so we don't kill our, our own citizens, so we don't starve our own citizens, but let's not use democracy to, you know, decide, you know, whether Uber can, you know, enter a new city. Uh, let's leave this to the market and the individual choice and freedom. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, I, I spent, when I was working on my last book, a lot of time reading up on romantic nationalism, which is what real nationalism was. It was driven by romanticism. And it's funny how today's nationalists and today's progressives who are sort of voluptuaries of small d democracy, they both subscribe to a pretty romantic understanding of the sort of sacredness and sanctity of the vox populi and that the collective will of the people is this unitary good thing and that you know democracy democracy's democracy's never wrong and it's just it's just not true you know i mean like i mean having a system is all the democracy is always right having the the idea that that 51% of the people have by the virtue of the last marginal person who voted all of a sudden become some sort of sacred wise oracle of goodness is is crazy talk people vote the wrong way all the time and it, it's 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 not anti-democratic to, to say so yeah yeah it's amazing to me that that the left never takes the lesson that uh look donald trump was elected fairly you know legitimately okay it's a fair legitimate democratic election the oh well the electoral college i mean God damn, that's stupid. <laughs> those were the excuse me. Those were the rules. <laughs> right. If, if they if, if if they hadn't had an electoral college, everyone would have run a very different campaign. Yeah, know? of course. I, I, I yeah. But but they don't. To, just to finish my thought, they don't take from that. Okay, what I think is the natural uh, lesson, which is we ought to limit democracy. We ought to limit you know what a uh, powerful executive can do. And yet that's never the lesson. The lesson is, oh, you know, Donald Trump expanded the power of government and now we're going to use uh, uh, Biden to do that. No, I look, I mean, I, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but the, the, the sort of intense majoritarianism of the left these days, get rid of the electoral college, make the Senate, you know, a proportional thing, uh, go with the popular vote, uh, is in deep and abiding conflict, fun, you know, almost uh, you know, fatal conflict with their cultural politics, which is um, sort of uh, categorize everybody by their by their racial identity or their gender identity, um, have encouraged people, except for white people, to vote on their racial identity. But by encouraging everybody else to vote on their racial identity, I think the social science is kind of clear on this. You encourage white people to do the same thing. And by any account, white people are the majority of this country. And if you convince all of the white people to vote and prefer policies based upon tribal racial self-interest, you're in real trouble. And so are, you know, you know, all of these very small minorities of transgender this and whatever. Um, if, if you're going to fetishize majoritarianism, be careful that you be, I would prefer if I was going to fetishize majoritarianism, I would first want to make damn sure I was in the majority on everything. And the cultural politics of the left are not in the majority on everything, as we're seeing on the stuff about crime. And, and, and as you know, one of the reasons you got Trump was because of the immigration stuff. I know, I, I know you don't like hearing that, but it's true. You know? um, yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. And I the only way you can have a diverse, multicultural, successful society 
is on a colorblind individualist basis. And the left is destroying that and creating the grounds for a kind of a race war. And it, it, it worries me, you know, exactly as you say, because uh, if you if you keep telling people that your your skin color is your identity, um, then eventually the whites are going to uh, you know, listen to and believe you. And that is going to be hugely problematic for any 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 minorities. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in, entirely in agreement with you. So it's funny, your your argument for democracy, which I'm very sympathetic to, you know, about how it's a hedge against it's a bulwark against bad stuff. This is largely my argument for for federalism and localism, which is that people are going to come up with bad ideas for how to organize society and better to have them as demonstration projects than one size fits all national projects. And you have to enforce out of reasons of decency and constitutionalism and fighting the civil war, certain basic fundamental neutral rules for everybody. But, um, beyond that, let a thousand flowers bloom. And if these collective decision-making, you know, if, 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 if North Dakota becomes one giant homeowners association, let them live with the consequences of that and have the confidence in your ideas that they will learn eventually over time that they were wrong when they see all these other states leapfrogging them economically. And maybe, you know, Jonah Goldberg and Alex are wrong and, and that, the, that their version of the HOA state makes people happier. And that's good to know too, you know, and people can move there. Yeah, one thing which worries me, which came through in the pandemic, is that federalism just seems so moribund uh, and listless um, in in the United States. Um, like the states, you, you know, the, the states are as powerful as many uh, you know independent countries, and yet in the pandemic, the the states completely fell apart, and everybody you know looked, oh, what is the federal government going to do? What? How are they going to fund testing? You know, fund the testing yourself, goddammit. You know, you're California. You're one of the most powerful places in the world. You know, you have your own, you know, set of labs and, and testing facilities. And you can have your, you could have, you could have done first doses first um, in California. You could have had an entirely separate policy, right? And yet the, the states just threw up their hands and said, oh, we have no money. Okay, right? <laughs> this is insane, right? They spend trillions, uh, literally trillions uh, uh, in state funding uh, every year. And, and yet they're, they're saying, well, we can't do anything. The federal government, we need to coordinate policy. And this is both on the left and, and, and the right, um, you know, that to think that the federal government is just the, the apex of um, power. So I was very, very disappointed that there was not more federalism, more literal and figurative laboratories of democracy. Yeah, I was too. I think it's a good point. All right, so I really wanted to ask you about Baumol's disease because I have questions. Uh, and um, so I'm going to do that very quickly. And then I just want to ask you about your optimism versus pessimism. I mean, this podcast is called The Remnant for a reason. It's an ode to Albert J. Knox. So, but first of all, on the Baumol's disease, if you could quickly sort of explain what it is and then explain to me how, well, I, what do, why don't we explain to people what it is first? And, and you're probably more practiced at this than I am. So why don't you go first? And then I have a follow-up question. Okay. So let, let, let me give you the classic example, which I'm sure you have heard maybe. The quartet thing, right? The quartet, right? Yeah. yeah, the quartet. Yeah. So I can go through it quickly, right? So the, the, the quartet in 1820, you know, to, uh, takes them 40 minutes to, you know, make the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, make the, the piece to, 
produce the piece. And now you bring that to 2020 and it still takes them, you know, 40 minutes for people, you know, exactly the same amount of time. Playing so Beethoven zero, or Mozart or whatever, right? Right, right. Ex- exactly. So sort of zero improvement in productivity for people, 40 minutes uh, uh, each, right? Um, and on the other hand, right, if you go back to 1820 and you say, what was the opportunity cost of those four people? Like, what could those four people, instead of being in the quartet, what could they have produced? And, well, you know, it could have been baked some bread and, you know, they could have done, you know, a, a little bit of sewing or, you know, fix a shoe, you know, something like that, right? Now you take these same four people who are probably pretty highly educated. Their opportunity cost is now much, much higher. So you have to give up, you know, they could have worked in, you know, high tech. They could have produced, you know, an iPhone, you know, who, who knows what, right? So the cost in terms of what you give up for the quartet has gone up. Right, you were only giving up some bread and 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 sewing in 1820. In you know 2020, uh, you're giving up a lot more, and that is reflected in the price. And that's why the price of these goods, which don't increase in productivity, that's why the price of these goods goes up. So when you look at there's this famous chart. You, I'm sure many of you have seen it on Twitter of all these goods which are going up in price, and you see like education and healthcare are, are two typical ones. Well, both of these goods are service goods. They involve, um, you know, the doctor has to spend time with you in the same way that the string quartet player, you know, has to spend 40 minutes. It's hard for the doctor to do a diagnosis without actually spending time with you. Or think about the services of a masseuse, right? You know, you, you know you, there are these chairs, but the chairs are just not as good, right, as uh, the, the masseuse. Um, so these products which involve, which are services, which involve a lot of labor, they tend to go up in time because their productivity is not improving. And that explains a lot of why computers get cheaper over time, but um, uh, healthcare gets more expensive or an education gets more expensive. These are actually flip sides of the same coin. The reason why education has become more expensive is that computers are cheaper. Uh, what we mean is what you need to focus on when you say education is expensive is not the dollar price. It's what you're giving up. And the more productive you are elsewhere in the economy, the more things you need to give up in order to get smart people in education. And so that's why these goods go up in price. And that's why, so I think it's, that's the primary explanation rather than it's unions or it's um, regulation or, you know, some it's laws. This is happening in pretty much every country in the world. It's happening for over 100 years. It happens under Republican administrations. It happens under Democratic administrations. You know, it happens. It happened before Medicare. It happened after Medicare. So you need kind of really some deep fundamental structural explanation for why some goods rise in price. And I think Bommel is the best explanation for that. So I, I am. I am sympathetic. I mean, it, it, it sort of, it makes me think of my friend, uh, uh, Nick Schultz and Arnold Kling wrote this book about, uh, the economy 10 years ago. And, and I learned from that book that simply by crossing the U S border, a Mexican laborer becomes something like four times more productive just because of the greater productive power of the U S economy. And, um, that would also gets to why they would make so much better wages and why they'd want to be here in the first place. Right. 
Right. So, and it also explains, right, when you go to Mexico, it's why you want to get a haircut in Mexico. Right. Because the barbers <laughs> are just as good, but it's much cheaper. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. But healthcare too. But in terms of, in terms of healthcare, if you look, I mean, at some point, the entitlement structure has to play into, play a significant role here insofar as my recollection, you know, going back is that there was sort of a Pareto-ish distribution in terms of healthcare utilizers and something like 1% were accountable for, you know, 15 or 20% of the costs, that kind of thing. And at the aggregate level, that can't be attributable solely to Baumol's disease, right? It has to be something having to do with the actual structure of how we, we, we pay for these things. No. Yeah. So look, I look that, you know, uh, every, there, there are many theories for why healthcare is screwed up and all of them are correct because healthcare is really screwed up. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so when I talk about Bommel, I'm primarily trying to explain like why over a hundred years, over 50 years, there's just been this kind of progressive, you know, year by year, sort of slow, like the icebergs melting, you know, uh, increase in price. But look, the whole system is totally screwed up. We don't have real prices. You know, there's no real markets. Um, you know, we, and nor, neither do we have government control, right? So we don't have a, uh, you know, a socialized, uh, system. Um, and so we've taken almost the worst of all worlds is that, um, uh, we have said we're going to have a, a private system and then we're just going to throw tons of money at it. Right. Um, so there's many, many things about healthcare, which are screwed up and many things which could be better. Um, but underlying it all is this kind of iceberg or glacier movement, uh, effect, which I think Bommel's disease is, is about, but I'm not against any of these other, um, we we need to do a lot more to fix that to fix that sector. And have, have wages for faculty at universities steadily gone up over the last century? Yeah. So, or the share uh, of out of the total operating budget taken up by salaries? I mean, wouldn't Baumol's disease predict that? Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to have a sort of statistical test of the type which you're talking about, which I, I agree is the kind of the way I think of. Because so many other things are all changing at the same time when you're thinking about these long-term uh, trends. But I do think that it is the case, right, that um, highly educated people, you know, high-skilled, high-skilled, high-educated people, we do know their salaries have gone way up, right? Um, that's the inequality story, right? You know, is that the returns to education have gone uh, way up. So that means that if to get people to teach in a university, you've got to pull them from other sectors of the economy where they have become more valuable, right? You know, famously, the, the dean was trying, economists tried to explain, you know, this theory to the, to the dean. And the dean said, you mean I should be paying you for the work that you're not doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly correct. I mean, if I wasn't a university professor, like, I I mean, admittedly, some of the people in my hall, if they weren't university professors, they might be on the street, you know, (laughs) but for many of of them, (laughs) (laughs) but look, I mean, I I think it's an interesting thing. And, you know, it, 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 it was funny when I was planning on doing this, 
I remember when your book came out uh, that you sort of revivified Baumol's reputation. And I remember doing a deep dive on him when I was a policy gnome at AEI 20 years ago. And I, I just, I have, it's one of these things where I get the point intuitively. I just think it feels to me like the explanatory power of it is, is maybe less than you, but you're the economist and I don't want to like, I, I, I not want to get in war in Southeast Asia and I do not want to get in an economics yeah, no, debate no, with you, I, but yeah. it seems to me like, uh, one of the cardinal rules, which I think conservatives get from libertarians, if not from their grandmothers, is that the more you subsidize something, if you subsidize something, you get more of it. And if you don't subsidize something, you get less of it. Or if you tax something, you get less of it. The Wall Street Journal just had this piece about these poor saps spending, borrowing, borrowing, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars to get a master in fine arts from Columbia or whatever it is. Um, we wildly subsidize you know, or it's not, it's not just that we subsidize education, you know, tuition in this country. It's that we disconnect the pert, the consumer from the price in all of these areas. And I was always taught, and I still believe that the more disconnected the consumer is from the price, the more likely they are to spend more. If you have an expense account, you're going to eat a lot more lobster and steak than you would if you were paying out of pocket. And that goes for healthcare and it goes for education and all of these things. And you're saying, no, not that's not really the primary explanation for it. And I just find that hard for me to get my head around. Yeah. Well, here, here's why I think, here's why I like the Bommel theory is because I like one theory to explain them all, right? Like one ring to rule them all, okay? <laughs> and so, so for example, um, take uh, cars versus car repair, Okay. You have exactly that same graph that you have with education versus computers. Car repair has gone way up in price. Cars have come down uh, in price. Or you think about clothes versus clothes tailoring, clothes repair, right? Exactly the same thing, right? It's much more expensive. You know, I mean, your, your, your mother and my mother and grandmother, they would fix their own clothes, right? Or they would take them to a tailor, be much, much more, more common. Nobody does that anymore um, because it's just cheaper to buy new. Right, you just buy new clothes. You know, every every season now, and you you throw out the old clothes. Now, so you so you think about like what explains like why uh, car repair and human repair they've both gone up in price. Okay, <laughs> right, human repair, healthcare, right, um, and you know, car repair. We're like we're not subsidizing. Uh, we're not insuring so much car repair. Right, most of that is still coming out out of out of pocket. Um, you know, we do have car insurance, I understand, but still most of that, you know, people, people feel that people feel that, um, or, or tailoring, you know, we don't subsidize, uh, tailors. Um, and yet, uh, you know, tailoring has gone up in price and clothes have gone down in price. You know, lawyers have gone up in price, right. You know, and things like that, all these service goods tend to have gone up in price. Um, and then there's the stuff we alluded to. So that's one thing. Then there's the stuff we alluded to earlier, like, you go, you think about a poorer country. A poorer country is like going back in time, okay? So you go to Mexico or you go to India where I've spent some time and tailors are cheap. Tailors are on every street corner. Um, you know, I went to a store, I was looking at a shirt and um, I said, oh, I like this shirt, but I was kind of thinking about, you know, a short sleeve shirt and this is a long sleeve shirt. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I want this one. No, 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 sir, sir, no problem. No problem. You come back in the morning and I have it for you. 
And so I come back in the morning and they send it out to a tailor and they turn the long sleeve shirt into a short sleeve shirt, right? Um, tailoring is incredibly cheap. Medical care is incredibly cheap um, in uh, India and it's high quality. You can get high quality medical care, right? So for exactly the same reasons that medical care has become more expensive in the United States over time, it's for those same reasons that tailoring and medical care, medical care and education are cheap in India. It's because they're so much less productive at building computers and automobiles and all these other goods. So, so again, I like the fact that this one theory can explain differences across countries, differences across time. It can explain why car repair service has gotten expensive at the same rate as, you know, human repair service, things like that. So that's kind of what impresses me about the theory. It's when you drill down into any one single area, then there's lots of possible explanations. But when you try and explain at the biggest possible picture, then I think Bommel, this Bommel story just fits so much more of the data. Um, that's very helpful. And, and, and I, I agree it has a lot of explanatory power. I, as long-time listeners of this podcast know, am against all monocausal explanations of everything. Uh, no one ever goes into a car dealership and says, I want to buy a red car today. Um, uh, but you'll like the story I'll, very quickly. My dad was doing business in India and he met with a very rich Bollywood mogul. This was in the 90s, early 2000s. And, um, and the guy said to my dad, Sid, I love your country. America is this wonderful, wonderful country, but um, I don't think I could live there because you can never be truly rich there. And my dad is like, what are you talking about? We have the richest people in the world in America. And, <laughs> and the guy says, he thinks about it for a second. And then he says, let me put it this way. I have never tied my own shoes. <laughs> and my dad made a point. My dad was like, he's right. You know, Bill Gates, as busy as he is, he ties his own shoes, you know, um, but the labor markets for everything. All right. So just yeah, I, I, Agatha Christie said, you probably heard this, but Agatha Christie once said, I never thought I would be so rich that I'd be able to afford my own car, nor so poor that I wouldn't be able to afford servants. <laughs> that's that's good i like that i'm gonna use that um all right we've gone long you've been a real generous spirit here um i will say I, i'm a huge fan of tyler cowan he's a brilliant decent mensch of a guy but we actually here have what we we actually call a certain problem that we get the tyler cowan problem and there are certain guests who are so unbelievable ramesh panuru is another one of these people so unbelievably disciplined in their answers that they don't give you any time to come up with a follow-up question. And, um, you know, like Tyler was on once and we actually had an audio problem and I had to like start over and ask him a question again. And he robot-like gave me the exact <laughs> same answer again down to the syllable and the pauses, which really freaked me out but uh so i, I want to say that 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 there is no tyler callan problem with with alex tabarak here and i i just want to close with one question you can answer it however you want um yeah and i said this podcast is called the remnant you made reference to the fact that uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm in a lonelier milieu among conservatives than i once was uh we now are living in a moment where where it seems like protectionism, industrial policy, 
statism is basically a bipartisan affair in a way where you know people like you would probably say well it was always never so neat and clean anyway and republicans had their problems but at least you could fairly call republicans hypocrites and the great things about hypocrisy is that you at least have to state what the principle you're violating is and now republicans have given up the principle and lived down to sort of the worst of libertarian expectations and you see biden keeping in effect a bunch of trump policies that uh, you would have hoped that they that he that he wouldn't have on on trade on um, on I just saw this piece the other day on eminent domain for the border wall, which is I find sh- really shocking politically. Um, the, for a while there, things were never moving in the direction that you want. That, things were never moving as fast as you wanted them to, but they were moving di- in the direction that you wanted them to. It doesn't feel like that anymore, and I'm just wondering what is your sense of optimism, pessimism about, you know, you are on the more libertarian fringe of the remnant, but I think we're sort of in the same classical liberal boat. Um, how do you feel about the future and all this stuff? Yeah, I do think it's kind of depressing. Um, so I came of sort of political age as it were, like in the, in the 1970s. Um, that's when I you know started thinking about politics and, um, and almost, from, <laughs> it didn't realize it at the time, but almost from the time when I became thinking about politics, things were moving in my direction, right? So, you know, Reagan was elected and, you know, whatever faults, but that was, you know, that was music to my ears, right? Reagan was speaking, you know, my language of, you know, free trade and, and liberty and freedom. And, you know, then there was Thatcher and in Canada, Mulroney, the conservatives. And uh, then later in the 1990s, of course, we had... Um, uh, globalization, um, the end the of the Cold War, of, which is good, and yeah. uh, the falling of the Berlin Wall. Right? Yeah. I mean, that was incredible. Right? That was an incredible moment in, in my life. Um, and uh, the rise of India, uh, rise of China. You know, ending of uh, mass poverty um, in China, especially uh, like everything. Which the irony is that everything which I said sort of ideologically would happen, did happen. This was great, right? The world was becoming more peaceful. The world was becoming richer. Um, the world uh, was becoming a freer. Um, you know, great things on on civil rights fronts as well, not just e- economically, but, you know, um, I thought gay marriage was a great thing. Uh, again, I never expected to see that um, in my lifetime. Decriminalization of marijuana, which is still sort of going on, I think I thought was was on the whole uh, good. But, but beating around, you know, 2000 with 9-11, I think, right? 2001 uh, uh, with 9-11, it all just seemed to collapse. And I think, actually, I think 9-11 has had a bigger effect on our national psyche um, than people realize. Um, Even though a lot of people don't even remember, they weren't born. um, I think this is kind of was like a scar. Um, you know, uh, you, when you're abused as a child, you know, you tend to recreate these things later on. And I think nine 11 just made us fearful and as a country and angry. And, uh, then we had the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, uh, and the long drawn out from nine 11, the long drawn out Afghanistan war, Iraq war. Um, and pandemic has just been very, very bad. The whole 21st century um, has been very bad. Uh, and yeah, I, ideologically, things are going in the wrong direction. So the remnant 
is the correct uh, terminology. You know, <laughs> uh, you know Leonard Peikoff. Uh, this is Ayn Rand's uh, yeah, yeah. person. You know, the you know he, he I at one point he made sure that Atlas Shrugged was printed on acid-free paper. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was crazy at the time, but now I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering whether he just wasn't, uh, you know, thinking ahead. <laughs> well, you know, speaking so of thinking ahead, he, he should have frozen his head and right. kept the acid-free papers of, the, of Ayn Rand with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So, yeah, I, I do think we are in the remnant period. And it, look, um, uh, you know, when Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman and Stigler, you know, when they formed the Mont Pelerin Society, 1948 or something like that, there were something like, you know, 10 democracies uh, in the world. And they lived in a time in which, you know, not just socialism, but, but communism, you know, was taking over the world, right? And, uh, you know, Mont Pelerin was a very, very small group. It was the remnant. Um, and they rebuilt. They did rebuild, um, you know, the whole, uh, after the whole World War II uh, renaissance, uh, you know, stems, in my view, from Mont Pelerin. Uh, so we need a new Mont Pelerin, and, uh, but we are, I do think we are in the remnant period. And so we need to protect conserve <laughs> so oh, and the remnant uh, is both as is 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 as double meaning right because it's both a lament about how small our group is but it's also the thing from which you rebuild um which is how knock meant it in that essay isaiah's job and if you go back and you look at the 1930s you had you know they called them the superfluous men or superfluous men and uh because they had no home on the right or the left, as it were, because statism was everywhere. And that was the remnant, too. And they were the ones who, you know, it was high. I mean, your point about Mont Pelerin, I think, is exactly right. And so long term, I'm still hopeful because I think our ideas are largely right. And the right ideas tend to win out over time because you exhaust all the wrong ideas. Um, but the long term is, can be a really long time, you know, so... Anyway, Alex, thank you so work. much. Thank you very much, you too. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for being indulgent of me. And um, we will put in the show notes all the various and sundry places people can find you and read you and 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 all the rest. And um, um, and it was a great conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Jonah. I'm okay. So uh, Alex has left uh, the studio and. Uh, I'm interested in the feedback from from listeners on this one, but I got to say I really enjoyed it. I like Alex a lot. Um, I, you know, I haven't talked to him much over the last ten years, except maybe the occasional email, if that. Uh, but I spent a good deal of time with him at that conference right after the financial crisis or so, and um, and I've been following him from afar. And uh, uh, anyway, I just like talking about this stuff, uh, and I I want some credit from people for not making any reference to the fact that his last name really does sound like a Star Trek name, you know, Tabarak could be, you know, one of the, one of the elders of the Vulcan council or something, or, you know, Tarmuk when the walls fell or whatever. Uh, but anyway, uh, I know there were people out there then they are going to, they're going to inform me of this who wanted me to push back more vociferously on his, his rank, revolutionary libertarianism but um i I think most everybody knows that 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 
I just don't think it would be all that fruitful to do it at any great length. And I wanted to get to more stuff. And, and come on, the public demand for an extended conversation about ball mal, ball cost disease. Um, I mean, I could almost hear people out there shouting, when are you going to get to it? Um, so I just figured we had to go that way. Anyway, uh, this coming next week or two is a little complicated for me for travel stuff. So you might be getting some, uh, clever, uh, adaptations, um, for me to figure out how to, you know, feed the maw, um, feed the beast of, of podcast production schedule, but I'm going to do my damnedest to fulfill all of my obligations and then some. And, uh, with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 